This is the Cameron Journal Podcast. It's a place where we talk about important things. It's a place where we bring a little slice of the news to you. And it's a place where we do important things, have important conversations. It's also things that I like to talk about. My name is Cameron Cowan, and this is the Cameron Journal Podcast. Hello everyone, it's Cameron. Welcome to the Cameron Journal News Hour. Ah, thank you guys so much for coming today and bearing with me. It has been a long day. I was up very early. I had a ton of meetings and a billion things to do. So I'm a little wore out, to be honest. Um, I was getting ready to do this and all this type of thing, and I'm kind of like, I am so ready to do the news hour so I can go lay down, um, take a shower, relax, and and chill out on stuff. So it's been it's been a lot, and and fortunately, this is my only crazy busy day this week. Um, the other days are much less, much less insane. I got to interview a really interesting business leader um, earlier today. And we were, uh, we were talking about uh, leadership and leading businesses and all that type of thing. And he had a, a background in baseball and runs a, a learning upskilling company. So that was really interesting. Today's interview is with my very dear friend, Sean Hartgrove, who is a world famous photographer. And I had wanted to interview him, oh my, since the earliest days of this show. Never made it happen, never made it happen. Um, Finally made it happen. It's all recorded. It's on the YouTube channel. So make sure to check that out. Um, It's a really great conversation. Um, It's, it's really, it's really cool. So, um, so make, do make sure to check that out, to check that out. Um, and go follow, um, Sean on social media, um, Heartgrove Photography on Instagram, all the, all the places. So, um, one of the things that I wanted, diving into the news, enough of my personal drama, diving into the news, um, one of the things that was a very hot topic last week and is still being talked about, um, is Trump's CNN town hall and the resulting questioning of CNN and the ardent defense of the uh, of the town hall by Anderson Cooper. So last Tuesday, CNN hosted a town hall with Trump as part of his presidential campaign, and he, you know, kind of did Trump's greatest hits and did his usual Trump thing. CNN got huge ratings out of it. Um, yay for them. And there was a lot of people who questioned CNN sanity for platforming this man and for 
you know, continuing to feed into him and his lies and his issues and 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 all this type of thing. Um, the following night, Anderson Cooper made a defense where he said, look, we can't just always have just one side of the story. We have to listen to all sides of the story and all the different perspectives. And while you might not want to watch us ever again, we're trying to, you know, we're, we're trying to provide a whole, you know, the whole thing here. And um, the ladies of The View talked about it. It's been talked about on social media, all this type of thing. And I wanted to bring it up simply to say, one of the problems, and this was very true in 2016, is the mainstream media really built up Trump and gave him a lot of free media he would have never otherwise gotten. They platformed him in a way that made his political career possible in a way that it might not have other, otherwise been. Partly this is them falling into Trump's trap. Here's the reality. These corporate media outlets love money and they love high ratings. Trump knows how to bring ratings. So there's kind of this natural financial symbiotic relationship between the mainstream media and Donald Trump that really explains why he can get an, you know, 52 minutes, you know, free to, you know, talk to people and, um, answer questions and all this type of thing on, you know, national and international television on a major network because the reality is Trump brings ratings and Trump understands that. I mean, he understands his power and his ability to get media is his ability to get ratings. And he's known that for 30 years at this point. I mean, so much of his brand has been getting media, getting attention, getting people to pay attention to him, doing things that get people to pay attention to him. Trump means money. And in an environment where your news media, your mainstream news media, is owned by corporations who want to see positive progress at the bottom line every quarter, anyone that can bring ratings like that and bring in advertising dollars is going to naturally be very popular with all parties involved. And Trump knows that and understands that. He knows how to manipulate the media. He's a master at manipulating the media. And the Trump town hall is just the the latest iteration. Here's what's sad is he's the leading candidate, but he's not the only candidate. There's other people running for president for the Republican nomination. And those people are not getting 45-minute town halls. Why is that, you ask? Because they don't bring the ratings. They don't bring in the money. It really, this is one where follow the money and things start to make a lot more sense. Um, so that's Trump and the town hall. That was, like I said, it was a big story last week, so I just wanted to address it quickly and say, yeah, a lot of hubbub, a lot of discussion, but really follow the money. Follow the money, and you'll get why they did it. Money and ratings. So um, some people say CNN's trying to get in on Fox's audience. Um, I don't think that's going to work given the rest of their coverage um, and the way they do things over there and all that type of thing. But um, it's certainly a bit of a coup because Trump didn't do a 45-minute town hall on Fox. Just saying. Um, the other big story that happened last week and over the weekend and, and kind of reached a titular point today um, was the unfortunate um, choking death by an ex-Marine, Jordan Neely. Um, he was killed by a man named Daniel Penny, who claimed that he was, Jordan Neely was acting erratically and screaming and shouting on the subway, and he had self, he felt threatened and, 
and tackled him because of for self-defense purposes and ended up killing him. Uh, Mr. Neely obviously was having a mental health crisis um, and uh, he was homeless and was not getting the services and things that he needed. That's obviously a huge structural issue. Huge structural problem. Needs to be solved. Um, does that give a random citizen the right to go around choking people out and killing them for that? Of course not. Um, <clears throat> uh, there has been a lot of talk and a lot of conversation over the last, um, the last several days about, you know, white people feel like they're automatically deputized and all this type of thing. And I think there is a certain element to that. And other people said, you know, oh, of course he was, should be shouting and crying out because he didn't have the things that he needed and all this type of thing. Not so fast. Nobody should have to put up with antisocial behavior, but nobody should die because of antisocial behavior. The reality of the situation is we have a lot of people getting left behind in this country, and obviously Jordan Neely was one of them. That's the problem we have to fix in that situation. That does not excuse anyone being killed for simply falling through the cracks of a system that has wide open chasms. And I don't know what's going to come of Daniel Penny and the legal case and all this type of thing. He turned himself in today. Um, I, in fact, I have, I have an article here um, from that I found that said his donation was from the Daily Caller, and it says, donations for Marine veteran Daniel Penny surpassed $2 million. It says here, former Marine Daniel Penny, who's facing manslaughter charges for subduing and allegedly killing the homeless man Jordan Neely on the New York subway, has surpassed $2 million in donations for his legal defense fund. Penny turned himself over to police on May 12th, less than 24 hours after the Manhattan District district attorney's office announced it would pursue manslaughter charges against him in connection with the death of 30-year-old Neely. A legal defense fund set up for the veteran surpassed $2 million Monday morning, a testament the case has struck a chord with people all across the country and the globe, Penny's lawyers told the New York Post. And they say, um, you know, why he's gotten all the money and the lawyers are saying, oh, we're, you know, going to do all this. And, and um, the legal defense fundraiser was endorsed by Republican Governor Ron DeSantis on Twitter, um, where he said, we must defeat the Soros-funded DAs, stop the left's pro-criminal agenda, and take back the streets for law-abiding citizens. We stand with good Samaritans like Daniel Penny. Let's show this Marine America's God is back, he declared. Um, this guy's a hero in my eyes, one anonymous donor wrote, according to the New York Post. He should get a medal for what he did, not jail time. We need to take our city back. God bless this guy for trying to help. So that's gonna be a fun... Yeah. That's gonna be a lot, is what's gonna happen. Um... Yeah, that's, that's gonna be a story for a while unfortunately um and that's gonna be something that that's gonna be the gift that keeps on giving for quite some time um obviously it's gonna be a national public trial it's gonna get political it's gonna be left versus right with ron de sanctimonious already being like this man's great you know sort of thing um yeah that's not gonna be great but we'll we'll follow it for you so turning into financial news for a minute, um, and we're going to get to fentanyl um, and other fun stuff. Um, we have the ex-CEO of Silicon Valley Bank um, 
<laughs> this is from Bloomberg. It says here, SVB's former CEO says Fed social media contributed to bank's collapse. Uh, Greg Becker cites efforts made to overhaul the bank in his testimony. And he says the fastest pace of rate hikes by the Federal Reserve in decades combined with negative social media sentiment contributed to the failure of SBV Financial Group Silicon Valley Bank, said Greg Becker, former chief executive officer of the company. The messaging from the Federal Reserve was that the interest rates would remain low and the inflation that was starting to bubble up would only be transitory, Becker said in a written testimony prepared for our U.S. Senate Banking Committee hearing Tuesday, focused on Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, both of which were seized by regulators in March. Indeed, between the start of 2020 and the end of 2021, banks collectively purchased nearly $2.3 trillion of investment securities in this low-yield environment created by the Federal Reserve. Silicon Valley Bank catered to the tech startup ecosystem. Um, he went on to say that uh, he acknowledged that lapses on the part of SVB raised by auditors and regulators that executives are working to rectify. He pointed to the expansion of the bank's treasury management team to enhance risk management as it closed in on $100 billion in assets, a level it surpassed in February 2021. The bank also sought to hire a chief risk officer with experience running so -called large, a so-called large financial institution after consultation with the Federal Reserve Board. SVB also looked to improve liquidity in 2022, while noting that regulators at the time said the bank had sufficient capital and liquidity. So he's, it's basically the typical, we didn't do anything wrong. We were like trying really hard, but then like things happen and whoopsie daisy, our bank collapsed. This man will never go to jail, by the way. Um, nothing will, this is as most scrutiny we're never going to hear this man's name ever again, I guarantee you. And we'll never see him ever again. This is the most scrutiny this guy's ever going to have. Um, the lack of confidence in the bank and the fact that they bought so much debt at such low interest rates that then became worthless. That's just poor. It's just poor bank management. Simple. It's just poor bank management. They didn't manage their risk. And now we, the taxpayer... Um, our socializing loss. Fun! Uh, before we get into debt ceiling talks, I was surprised this headline was very interesting. The EU approved Microsoft's $69 billion deal for Activision. The green light follows objections to the blockbuster deal by American and British regulators on the grounds it would undercut competition. It <clears throat> says here, Microsoft's faltering $69 billion bid to buy the video game company Activision Blizzard received a glimmer of hope on Monday when the European Union regulators approved what would be the largest consumer tech deal in two decades. EU officials said they would allow the deal after Microsoft, the maker of the Xbox console, made concessions to ensure that rival companies of new online gaming services would have continued access to titles developed by Activision, such as the hugely popular Call of Duty. Even so, the blockbuster acquisition, which has become a test of whether regulators around the world will approve a tech mega-merger amid concerns of the industry's power, still faces an uphill climb. American and British regulators have each moved to stop the acquisition in recent months, arguing that a combination of the Xbox maker with the company behind the Call of Duty franchise would hinder competition. Microsoft is fighting both actions. The deal has revealed fractures among regulators about how to crimp the power of the world's biggest technology companies. I was surprised because usually when it comes to big deals, the EU is the hardest legal entity to work with on big deals like that. So the fact that the EU has let it go through is a good sign whatever concessions that they made might work on the American and British counterparts um, 
as as well. We'll see if that deal continues to go through. We're on like year two of seeing if that deal is going to happen. So it is kind of just a small anecdotal market story, um, especially if you're in the gaming space, to see how that might how that might happen. Um, turning back to politics and whatnot, um, we still do not have a debt limit agreement. And according to uh, this article, um, debt limit talks are far from over. McCarthy says ahead of Biden meeting. Uh, Biden will meet congressional leaders before Japan trip. Um, no agreement on anything House Speaker warns at the Capitol. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy said ongoing talks to avert a historic U.S. default were yielding little progress, even as President Joe Biden announced plans to meet with congressional leaders on Tuesday. We're nowhere meeting, we're nowhere reaching a conclusion, McCarthy said Capitol, Monday on Capitol Hill, adding he felt that ongoing staff-level meetings are, quote, not productive at all. The talks so far have not produced agreement on anything. His remarks came shortly after Biden told reporters in Philadelphia on Monday that the meeting was set a day after confirming it was in the works. Neither McCarthy nor the White House was able to provide a time for the sit-down, which will be the second session for Biden and the congressional leaders this month, and comes after aides met last week and through the weekend. The standoff has been roiling markets and investors bet whether a deal can be reached. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has warned that a default could come as soon as June 1st. A default would sink markets, leave potentially millions out of work, and hike borrowing costs for families and the U.S. government alike. The sides have sent mixed signals. Biden said Sunday that he was optimistic a deal could be reached, while McCarthy spent Monday downplaying the odds of success. People familiar with the meetings have said that the White House has pushed to exclude elements of the bill passed by House Republicans last month, including eliminate the president's, eliminating the president's program to forgive some student loans, as well as signature legislative accomplishments from discussions. But the two sides are negotiating around possible spending caps in future years, changes to energy permits, and a GOP-led bid to claw back $60 billion, $65 billion in unspent pandemic funds. A key topic of dispute in the negotiations is expanding work requirements for anti-poverty government benefits, both McCarthy and Biden have said. I just don't see movement. It seems as though they wanted to have meetings to say they had meetings, not really to find a solution. Biden is scheduled to depart Wednesday for a trip to Japan, Papua New Guinea, and Australia. White House officials have said Monday that those plans have not changed despite the ongoing debt talks. So it appears that talking is talking and talking and no one's doing anything. Um, I did find this other article, which I thought was very interesting, <clears throat> and it's called Tales from the Crypto Winter, and, um, and it, it, I'm not gonna read a lot of it because it's, it's an experience, um, it's a lot, but what it does do is it goes through different stories and I'll post it in the notes. Um, it goes through different stories and different people who made money, did not make money, got left behind, all this type of thing in, in crypto. <clears throat> um, crypto is, you know, a, a market. I, I was involved in crypto very early on. I cashed out pretty early on and said, no, thank you. And I, I missed the wave. I mean, I think I cashed out my Bitcoin at like 600, 700 bucks, somewhere in there, um, and kind of missed the big ride all the way up. And a lot of people made a lot of money, um, but the re unfortunate reality is that it's all predicated on the greater fool. It's all predicated that you have something else someone wants to buy, and if you can continue doing that, and you can continue selling it, then you can make money off of it. Um, there's no underlying value. There's no product productivity 
Um, so it's really just kind of shuffling money around. And when I realized that I cashed out, these stories, though, are so fascinating because there's like people that are like in it for the tech and people that are doubling down and, oh, things are going to come back and blah, blah, blah. And it's, it's those stories are fascinating, um, particularly the one um, the one guy um, who is uh, what was his name here? Oh, Corey Wilson. Um was talking about uh, some of the coins that he likes. And there's a splashy picture of him with a jewelry of his favorite coin and all this type of thing. And it's fascinating. Go read it. Go check it out. Um, it's worth it's worth looking at. Um, as we're getting into drugs um, and kind of bridging from economics to drugs, um, this is an interesting article on WorkShift. It says remote work comes with daytime drug and drinking habits. It says here, cocaine, benzodiazepines, and other drugs are no longer after-hours activities. On any given workday, it says here, Ray wakes up, brews coffee, smokes a cigarette, and then takes a hit of pot before sitting down to morning Zoom meetings. Yeah, maybe my eyes are red, but no one can see that on Zoom, says Ray, a West Coast executive, who typically continues to take a puff of marijuana hourly while on the job, all the long tail of a methamphetamine addiction that he developed during the pandemic lockdowns. If I get really tired, I can just go lay down, says the executive, who is disclosing only his middle name for fear of damage to his career. Now I can use in ways I never before imagined. Data suggests there could be millions in the workforce like Ray. Um, and it goes through some stats that um, uh, from the Federal Bank of Atlanta and work participation rate and substance use disorders and all this type of thing. Drug recovery firm Sierra Tucson concluded from a November 2021 survey that 20% of U.S. workers admitted to using recreational drugs while working remotely and also being under the influence during virtual meetings. Um, it's... Uh, um, and so it says here that uh, as a result, undetected drug habits flourish and are now only coming to light as more companies require workers to return to the office. The last thing to go is the work, says Indra C. Dombi, medical director of the New Jersey-based Center for Network Therapy. Employees think it's a temporary phase, that they'll get back to work and everything will be all right. They call and say, am I an addict? I can't be. It was never an issue. Employers and 10 are up. Random workplace drug testing rose 37% from 2021 to 2022, according to screening company First Advantage. To be sure, hiding substance abuse from the boss has been around as long as there have been bosses, but pre-pandemic, most excesses were limited to after hours. With people working remotely, there might be a more mixed pattern, says Daniel Angres, medical director at Chicago's Positive Sobriety Institute, a clinic for professionals and physicians. In industries that have safety measures like drug testing and access to therapists like healthcare, he sees less misuse, defined as using in ways counter to medical guidelines while negatively impacting health and functioning. We see it in particular where there are fewer safeguards built in, such as in fields of technology, finance, and law. And then it goes on to talk about Ray and all the people that are t different, <laughs> just popping the pills, taking drugs, smoking, and, and Ray eventually um, has returned to sobriety during working hours now, and people are trying to cope with getting out of bad pandemic habits. However... It appears that not everybody's on the sobriety train. And I say this because my next story has to do with the fentanyl crisis on the southern border. It says, A U.S.-Mexico crackdown on drugs has stalled, even as fentanyl deaths rise. 
Um, an informal agreement to probe traffickers failed to bring action. Uh, the president denies cartels make fentanyl despite import surge. It says here, with the fentanyl crisis deepening across North America, U.S. drug authorities in 2021 identified dozens of Mexican companies suspected of trafficking the narcotics' key ingredients. They took their findings to the country's financial intelligence chief at the time. The two sides agreed to cooperate on a crackdown of the companies allegedly involved, according to current and former officials from both countries. Three people close to the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration say the arrangement included plans to freeze the accounts of the 50 Mexican businesses the agency had named as alleged traffickers. More than a year and a half later, that effort has stalled, said the people close to the DEA, who asked not to be named because they aren't authorized to speak about operations. The Mexican official, Santiago Nieto, departed in late 2021, and only one company on the U.S. list had its account blocked. The collapse of what U.S. officials describe as a once-promising sign of cooperation underscores the fraught relations between the countries at a time synthetic drugs are killing Americans in record numbers. The explosion of fentanyl has become a particularly pressing issue for Mexican President Andreas Manuel López Obrador, who has denied the narcotic is being produced in his country and frequently uses his daily press conferences to blame the U.S. as an insatiable customer. The past few weeks alone show the complexities of their drug enforcement ties. A delegation of Mexican cabinet members in April traveled to the U.S. and were met by mostly lower-level officials. After the meeting, the countries agreed in a statement to step up the fight against fentanyl production and illegal firearms trafficking to Mexico. And all of this, and it goes on to talk about the border crisis and all this type of thing. Um, and a little bit about Mexican politics. Um, the... I mean, obviously, when it comes to the migration issue, we talked about that last week in the terrible humanitarian crisis that's happening at the border, which has gotten worse now that Title 42 is gone and people no longer have to wait in Mexico and can wait for asylum in the United States. People are just, you know, crossing on their own or trying to get to a to, to a border crossing to ask for asylum. A lot of people are just walking. They're just leaving their tent cities and they're just walking into the U.S. to um, seek asylum that way. And, um, uh, and that is its own sort of crisis, and that piles on with this fentanyl crisis, which is literally a matter of Americans love their drugs, as we just heard about with this remote working thing, and, and, and to some degree, President Obrador of Mexico is right. You have an insatiable customer in the United States, and as long as the U.S. wants drugs someone somewhere will provide them now the mexican companies who are buying the ingredients tend to buy it from china china is exports them without asking a lot of questions mexico imports them without asking a lot of questions because they're used in other things and these companies can then sell on the ingredients to cartels who make the fentanyl and then it's easily crossed over the border from there because they're very very practiced fentanyl is in all street drugs now it used to be meth was in everything now fentanyl's in everything and the stuff is so deadly um that od cases are on the rise in 2022 150,000 americans died from fentanyl overdoses it's quite tragic um and uh and that's you know it's it's quite uh, it's quite quite difficult, and I wish I wish more could be done. But the unfortunate reality is, as long as there's a demand for it, somebody is um, somebody's going to supply it. So, um, moving right along, um, we have um, <laughs> a, a rather sad day in 
in media. Um, today, Vice Media um, LLC files for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Um, it says here, Vice Media LLC filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy Monday, a process that is likely to result in the sale of the company to Fortress Investment Group and Soros Fund Management for $225 million. The news comes a few weeks after the company shuttered Vice World News and canceled Vice News Tonight, its flagship news television program, resulting in more than 100 layoffs across the newsroom. The company will continue to operate normally during the Chapter 11 process. Chapter 11 filing documents viewed by Motherboard show that Vice Media and 31 Associated Companies owe Fortress $474.6 million. Uh, Vice Media Group says today it has agreed to the terms of an asset purchase agreement with a consortium of its lenders, the company said in a press release. Um, the filing, which is the latest in a series of blows to the company, which once took funding at a $5.7 billion valuation. In 2019, the company raised $250 million in debt from investors including Fortress and George Soros' Soros Fund Management. Um, and, uh, that coming off the closure of BuzzFeed News and a general reshuffling of the media environment, uh, it is, it's a lot. Um, it's no, honestly, given how things are going with the media environment and how things are happening with um what was New York Media and Vox are working together. Um Huffington Post got sold a couple years ago. There's big consolidation happening in media. And the sad unfortunate reality is if you're advertising funded and supported, hi. Um Google and Facebook control the advertising market. It is very I was just had a meeting about this this afternoon about the difficulties in monetizing and making things happen. Um in the environment because of Facebook and Google and how much of the market that they control and how difficult, uh, how difficult the modern media environment, uh, is. And the loss of vice is truly, truly a genuine tragedy. I would say truly a genuine tragedy. Um, and speaking of tragedies, although not nearly as much, um, National Review had a great article on the death of AM radio. Now, here's why this is ironic. So National Review is a conservative publication. My favorite conservative publication. AM radio has been a bastion of right-wing politics for, since I was a kid. Since the 80s, really. <clears throat> and, uh, but obviously, thanks to streaming and podcasts and all this type of thing, radio in general, but particularly AM radio, um has uh has not obviously has had a shrinking audience um when fm came out in the 80s everyone was like what are we gonna do with am because that would been what all radio had been until then and then right wing talk radio came along and sports radio and kind of saved am and now the internet is you know the internet has killed the radio star um and so this is by Noah Rothman, and he talks about his experience working in AM. But uh, here is the meat of it. It says, uh, for a while, AM retained its capacity to shock and delight listeners, even as social and technological forces colluded to throttle the life out of its chief competitor, FM. 
In the early 2000s, the FCC amended its schedule of fines, meted out to the body host populating the FM band, who danced along the line dividing decency from obscenity. The syndicator and the network became liable for what were once individual discretions. In 2005, an act of Congress augmented fines for airing raunchy content, altered programming director's calculus. Even as the advent of streaming services threatened the music format model, the upshot of being a jukebox beat, the risk of tempting the regulators. Which is how Howard Stern ended up leaving NBC in New York and going to Sirius XM. Through it all, AM persevered. Its primary competitors, by then broadcasting via orbital satellites, had broken free from the morality codes imposed on them by congressionally sanctioned vice squads, but the content beaming down from the thermosphere had a national audience and was, therefore, national in its scope. The homogenized product it produced led AM programmers to go the opposite route, hyper-local content that was unique to a particular region which had the added advantage of skirting polarizing issues that might scandalize the audience. AM thereby emphasized the competitive advantage, but more importantly, played it safe. I wouldn't know about all that. I used to work in AM radio, and it was always pretty divisive. It was always pretty right-wing. It says here, towards the end of the last decade, the AM dial followed the same trajectory as the conservative movement. Its commitment to iconoclastic contrarianism evolved from a hostility to effect sensibilities abroad in the culture towards an internecine attack on these sensibilities where they prevailed inside the conservative movement. Donald Trump's ascension put an end to the permanent revolution on the right. The order of the day soon became reinforcing his narratives and his greedy and his grievances. Um... And then he goes into how, you know, radio is changing and getting weirdly somehow less political, um, which I thought was uh, was a bit interesting with kind of shifting to sports talk and and all this type of thing. So I thought I thought that was interesting. I, I got my start in AM radio. Um, I was at 710 KNUS in Denver and then I was at 1310 KFK in Greeley. Um, and it was we were very local and we were kind of your hometown radio station and we had local ads from local people and we had local shows and but i mean when was the last time you turned on am radio in your car no we're all on our phones we're all listening to podcasts and our own music and we're streaming and blah 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 like terrestrial radio is really on its way out um and that's unfortunate i mean but it lasted 100 years that's pretty good for a medium that has had to go through motion pictures and television and the internet. It's not bad. And maybe radio will find some new way of reconstituting itself. But I, uh, if AM has decided politics is too much and all this type of thing, then I, I won't be too sad. We're going to wrap up on this story because I'm, I'm wearing out. Um, <laughs> this is interesting. So today we had the release of the Durham report. Um, uh, four years after investigating the Russia inquiry, John Durham turned in a report that was made public on Monday. And it says here in final report, New York Times, Trump era special counsel denounces Russia investigation. It says here, John Durham, the Trump era special counsel who for four years has pursued a politically fraught investigation into the Russia inquiry, accused the FBI of, quote, a lack of analytical rigor in a final report made public Monday that examined the bureau's investigation into whether the 2016 Trump campaign was conspiring with Moscow. 
Mr. Durham's 306-page report appeared to show little substantial new information about the FBI's handling of the Russia investigation, known as Crossfire Hurricane, and it failed to produce the kinds of blockbuster revelations impugning the Bureau that former President Donald J. Trump and his allies had once suggested that Mr. Durham would find. Instead, the report, released without substantive comment or redactions, repeated previously exposed flaws in the inquiry, including from a 2019 Inspector General report, while concluding that the FBI suffered from a confirmation bias as it pursued leads about Mr. Trump's ties to Russia. And it goes on to quote, to quote the report. Um, I'm going to write more about that um, on Cameron Journal um, and get into a little bit more um, on all of that. I'm actually going to go through the report and and talk about that. Um, there's also some revelations re Hunter Biden coming up. So we'll definitely be talking about about those. And uh, yeah, we're going to go from there. So like I said, guys, I'm a little tired. I need to go take a break and a rest and all this type of thing. So I'm going to call it quits today a little early. Um, I know it's only a half hour, but somehow I think you'll survive. I think you got your headlines, your news. We talked about stuff. So stay safe out there. Be good people. And I will see you next week for the Cameron Journal News Hour. That's all for this episode of the Cameron Journal Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Visit us online at CameronJournal.com. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And I love to talk to my followers and listeners, so please feel free to uh, get us on social media at CameronCowan on Twitter. And we'll see you next time on the Cameron Journal Podcast. <laughs>